0: at best served podcast. Now here is your host. What's up everybody. Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Could not be more excited this morning. This is the 100th episode of best served live. We're on location for the first time at Softa restaurant, Alon Shia's outpost in Denver, Colorado. And we're going to be talking to multiple guests today. This is exciting for us because we get an opportunity to be face-to-face for the first time with a little distance, as well as getting Chef Edward Lee on. We got Garrett Oliver coming on. We got Sylvia Hernandez, Debbie Gold, and we're going to start out with Liliana Myers, the head pastry chef of SAFTA. Please take some time to share this. Tag all of your Unsung Hospitality heroes. It's going to be a fun day. Appreciate you. Enjoy the show. All right, everyone. First off, we have Liliana Myers, who is the head pastry chef at Softa Restaurant. Liliana, thank you for being our 100th episode of the show.
1: Oh, my God. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to do it.
0: Yes. So give us a little bit of what Softa is all about. Let everyone know kind of the restaurant, the mission, how long you guys have been here, a little background.
1: Yeah. So we're a modern Israeli restaurant. We're located in Rhino in Denver. Um, We've been open for just going on two years now. It'll be our anniversary in about a month. Um, So it's pretty exciting. Um, We have two different restaurants. We have one in New Orleans, as well as here in Denver. Uh, Alon Shaya is the one who is kind of our chef behind all of our restaurants. He started Pomegranate Hospitality about two and a half years ago with a really like big core mission of making sure that um, we're really accompanying to everyone who works here, uh, that there is no harassment of any form at the restaurant, that we're really uh, great at supporting our cooks and our family here at Softa. Uh, we try to make sure education is a really big proponent of what we're doing love Um, try to use a lot of local farms and just you know really be community leaders around here
0: that's really great and talk about the the food style a little bit you said modern israeli kind of how does that play out on the menu
1: um so a lot of things obviously hummus is like our big mainstay hummus and pita are you know what we're really known for which is great Um, and then we do a lot of other different dishes based off the Jewish diaspora throughout Europe and Israel. So it's not only Israeli food, you'll see some like, um, you know, some European things in there as well. Um, so Alon's background is that he was born in Israel and his mother is a Bulgarian. So we have a lot of Bulgarian things on the menu. Um, my myself is that I was from New York. And so I have a lot of New York Jewish background in me. So I do a lot of things like with that kind of a style to it, which is Israeli as well. Um, we actually had to go, got to go to Israel last year on a beautiful uh, trip just to kind of like learn. For and, the team? For the team. Yes. For all the management team. And I don't think I've ever eaten that much food in my whole entire life. <laughs> uh, but it was so great. You know, like it was eaten at. Um, we
0: that sounds break. like an amazing life in general, but definitely <laughs> for a single trip. All right. For everybody watching, I want to give you guys a little bit of context for why we're starting off the show and why there's a fire truck going by. Why we're starting off the show with Liliana, because it's this show has been really built on good people connecting good people and so when we were talking about doing the 100th episode we're like and restaurants were opening back up we want to go out and support a local restaurant so i did a call out on social media said what restaurants are out there that'd be great for us to team up with for our 100th episode liliana reached out and i was like this is perfect and the serendipity of all this i absolutely love because liliana's story is an amazing story and we want to always introduce ourselves to new people we had never met before. Mm -hmm. So this is an opportunity for me to kind of play into the ethos of introducing ourselves to new humans and hospitality. And then we also have Chef Edward Lee coming up, who started the Lee Initiative. Softa is the Lee Initiative restaurant in Denver. And I literally pull into the parking lot, and there is a Lee Initiative (laughs) branded Audi. I was like, the serendipity is strong today. So I want to give people that background. This is why it's so important for me to start out the show here with you let's give people a little bit of your background. Take us back, where are you from originally? When did you catch the hospitality restaurant chef bug?
1: Yeah. So uh, uh, I grew up in New York on Long Island. Um, I originally went to school for chemical engineering and pre-med and I really didn't like that. Um, Which wasn't something that I really wanted to do. From pre-med
0: to grinding it out in the kitchen. Yeah. I love it.
1: Um, So I kind of, this is the only other thing I really wanted to do I had one family friend who basically suggested they were like, "You know you live right outside of New York. What if you don't try to go to culinary school and you just try to get a job? So I sent about fifty or so resumes out to like, I don't know. I picked like some number ends I got. I was like, as long as you got a risk number, I'll send your resume. And I went around the city all day and dropped off resumes, interviewed people. And I got really lucky and I got hired at per se at Bouchon Bakery.
0: Right out of the gate.
1: Uh Yeah, I kind of, like, call them all the time. And at the worst times, too, I would call it like, 7 o'clock at night and be like, is the chef there? I want to know if I got a job. Wow. It. it was horrible. I didn't even know at the time that that was, like, such a working, horrible thing so, to so,
0: so you go from pre-med to one of 14 three Michelin star restaurants in the entire country. Yeah. It makes total sense to me. <laughs> Clearly that. Okay, so you got the bug in a big way and went out to that level. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to do what we always do. We want to talk about the people that have impacted our lives and careers. Are there some early mentors, maybe at per se? Did you work with Joshua Schwartz?
1: Um, I worked with, uh, I can't remember his name right now. It wasn't Joshua was Schwartz. So. Oh. This was like good, 13 years ago. Um, but I actually got to work at Danielle and Barbalood and opened that restaurant. And I got to work with Gaia Oliveira, who is the pastry oh, yeah. chef at Danielle now. And she is amazing. She was like one of my biggest mentors. She taught me almost everything. It's amazing. Um, I got to work with her for about two years before uh, some another chef there actually hooked me up with a job in France. And she was great. I also uh, got to work with Elma Lopez when I got back from France, who now owns a restaurant in Portland, Maine with her husband, Damien. And she was really awesome too. She was really great teaching me a lot of things as well as A lot of things about I'm Colombian and I was born there, but I was adopted. So I don't really know too much about the food there. And she was Venezuelan. So she made it like her mission to like teach me how to cook South American food and like really just try to get more of that mentality. And it was really like invaluable in so many ways that like, I just never knew that part of my culture.
0: Okay, now I want to connect those dots because New York. Mm-hmm. right you have that background then you're doing israeli food or modern israeli food and then you also have the colombian background pastry very much rooted in french mm-hmm. right how are you navigating all of that you know it seems like it can be a challenge i'm guessing you take it as an opportunity to be able to kind of connect the dots for you because it's your personal experience in history
1: yeah i mean i love it and i love learning different cuisines i'm very um I love looking things up like you should see the office. It's full of like cookbooks that I've personally bought and everyone hates
0: When it. you were waiting to get on, you were literally at a table around the corner <laughs> reading a book, just <laughs> nose down in the book. So I believe that 100%. It's in you.
1: Um. So it's really great. I, I like to take the initiative and just kind of learn different things as well as just to find like a lot of recipes that I love to use are like my grandmother's recipes. Great. And I think Aren't those, those the best are the, recipes? I mean, they're the best. They always are. And my great, great grandmother owned a, actually a... Coacher catering business in Nebraska, which is where my mom's side of the family is from. And so I have all these like recipes that are in huge quantities already and like blintzes for like 500 people and stuff. And what's and- it? Runza? Runza. Okay. Oh, yeah.
0: Look that up, people. <laughs> Runza. It's, it's, a, it's a Midwestern classic.
1: Yeah. I make that drive a lot. Down yeah. To Omaha.
0: Understood. But
1: um, it's really great to be able to use those different things and like some different like pans and tart molds that I have from her yeah, from great. way back when. And I like that I actually get to use them now. Have them sit in like a you know a basement somewhere in storage. Uh, it's really nice to be able to you know pull them out and get to do those things that my great grandmother used to.
0: So important. I think you know it's interesting. I've heard why we can never cook. My mother's a great cook. Why we can never cook as well as our our mothers and grandmothers is the secret recipe is in their hands. Yeah. Right. There's like the touch of the food always just makes it taste better. It's that love secret ingredient, but really it's it's the touch of mm-hmm. it, which I think is super important and interesting. Anybody that we need to know about, we're all about the shout outs here. We want to learn about more unsung hospitality heroes. Anybody else you've worked out with your, throughout your career that just you knew the day you showed up that they were working, you were going to have a great shift or specifically here. Any of those people that we just, we just need to be introduced to.
1: Um, yeah. So there was, I don't know if she's still there anymore, but when I was the picture chef at Brasca food and wine in Boulder, yes, we had this amazing dishwasher. Her name was Lupe. Her husband worked there too. Um, she was just the kindest person ever. And she would make this pozole and bring it in. You could like buy it. Oh my god. I have like dreams about this pozole. It was so good.
0: We're gonna track down this pozole. She's, we're doing a follow-up episode <laughs> where you and I She's and She's doing smalles too. Oh, yeah. It it's the best.
1: But she was just always such a like kind-hearted person. And we're just, you know, she was just great to be around. And you knew that, you know, everything would get done and it would be a great day if she was there. And it was just such a nice touch.
0: I want I want Lupe like on the show. I want everybody like that on the show. I want people to understand that that. Alon shia and chef edward lee garrett oliver debbie gold like people that are going to be on this show you know they have big name brands still to them when i ask them who the most important person in the restaurant is they all say the
1: dishwasher because oh, they know 100%. it's
0: the most important person the first not person i feed it's always <laughs> the person that i fed too like i always told my whoever was the the chef on duty like you cook a meal for the dishwasher and not some leftover fish that got overcooked mm-hmm. like the best that you can do because they're the most important person in the building so i'm really really grateful lupe and now i know lupe and literally when you're talking about the pozole and the tamales and the kindness like i've never met lupe yet i know lupe so well because mm-hmm. we're surrounded by them and i really want people to know that anybody here at Softa that you're just really lucky to work with
1: yeah i mean um actually our gm jen uh she just started like maybe a few weeks before COVID went down, Wow, which is kind of crazy. And she has been such a rock star. I mean, just there all the time. And great. I mean, we've had not the best luck with GMs in the past. Mm. She's been just amazing. And it's been such a pleasure to work with her and to know that there are certain things I don't have to worry about as much anymore because like it's it's handled and it's handled great. And like, it's really awesome to, you know, find those people who really want to work and, out the best in a place as much as you
0: do the trust and confidence is key mm-hmm. lilian thank you so much for taking some time thank you for hosting us of course my we're, pleasure. we're gonna stop talking now but we're gonna about to eat this we appreciate everybody this is our 100th episode kicking off with a bang beautiful setting great conversation we got grandma's we got lupe we got Pasole, we got hummus uh really grateful for the opportunity everybody thank you all right What's your dessert?
1: Oh, this is a baklava. I got some strawberries from Isabel Farm yesterday. Um, So it's pistachio baklava and a strawberry and yogurt pudding on the bottom, some poached rhubarb and fresh strawberries. It's really
0: yummy. I like everything that you just said, like so much. And we're back with Chef Edward Lee of the Lee Initiative, 610 Magnolia. You've probably seen him on Mind of a Chef. Louisville, Kentucky, in the house. Edward, thanks for taking some time.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So I want to take people back a little bit, maybe a couple of nuggets from early on. Ed Lee, when did you catch the hospitality, the chef, the restaurant bug? Take us back to that time.
2: Oh, you mean like when I was a kid? Yeah. (laughs) That was, uh, uh, I was young. Um, I don't know, man. I, I, I would say that I have always wanted to be a chef um i remember being like a, a like a 10 year old and wow. um you know wanting to cook in the kitchen and and i told my parents i was going to be a chef and and they said that's fine you're crazy go back to school and um
0: they said you need to get a real job
2: they said you need to get a real job and be an accountant or a dentist and uh, <laughs> what what do they I say just, now uh, they still think uh, you have been they, they, they they're they're actually completely shocked that i made it <laughs> which gives me a lot of confidence they had a lot of confidence in me um but yeah they're they're very happy but um they're they're uh yeah they're completely flabbergasted um they quite don't know what i actually do for a living um (laughs) because they're like you're home a lot or you're always traveling i'm like i know it's it's different now it's different but anyway
0: yeah so 610 magnolia that's where i first met you this has been coming up a lot there's a lot of intersecting lines between the 2011 Kentucky Derby when we were out there cooking. Tori mcfail has been ago. on the show. Nancy yeah. Long goes on next week. You know, Gina Berry and all the work that she's done. Yeah. And they took us around and we went to 610. And it really, it was really an amazing meal, first of all. But oh, i was really fascinated yeah. in the way that you've kind of taken contemporary cuisine, a lot of the hook cuisine and things that we came up on, Thinking about things like fermentation, which we're complete fermentation nerds, you and I, that's a whole other show, and weaving those things in very seamlessly. Talk about the ethos, the dynamics at play, and kind of when you think about food in that context.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, food for me is always a, a, about striking a balance. Um you know, we, we, we're not, we're not an extremist restaurant. Um, and, and by that, I mean, I, I, I never take one concept and push it, um, to it's like, you know, thousandth degree. Sure. Um, I really love taking, uh, bits and pieces of it's like solving a puzzle. I love taking bits and pieces of things, something new, something old, um, something fermented, but something raw um and just kind of weaving it together and 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 creating a food that's very expressive of who i am um and and trying to tell a story on a plate um i always tell people like i don't i'm korean but i don't cook korean food um i live in the south but i don't cook southern food like i I cook i take elements from each of those and create something that's very personal to me um But I'm not a traditionalist, you know, like I'm not I'm never going to make like a straight pasta dish. I'm never going to make like, you know, a a bulgogi dish like that's traditional. Uh, I'm always going to take concepts and kind of just, you know, bend them uh, to suit my needs.
0: The storytelling. Talk about that aspect, because that's one of the things I've been very struck with, is that you do have a complex narrative, a personal narrative and a culinary narrative. Yet you've done a really good job through some of the different you know, TV shows and documentaries and just your general storytelling through your concepts of telling that story. Where and when does it work? Where and when do you see a challenge in being able to kind of express that?
2: Well, it's it's always a challenge. I mean, you know, people don't realize like, you know, I I, I probably make six horrible dishes for one that actually works and lands on a menu yes. you know like we're always experimenting if you're like oh my god everything you make's delicious and i'm like yeah because the ones that are terrible i don't serve it so so you don't know it. <laughs> it's hard work getting here yeah but we, we 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 experiment with dishes all the time and 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 actually more often than not they, they don't make it on a menu um And I think that's what happens when you try and tell a story, like like it's just I don't know, it's like writing a story, right? Like not every sentence is gonna make it onto that final cut, Um, and that's good. Like we 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 need to sort of there's a process, and so um, that's fun for me. That's fun, you know. We 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 take all our world's experiences, we take all of our learning, we take all, and then we try and create some just something new and different um, that that you know feels southern. You know, feels Asian, feels like New York, like where I came from, you know, feels modern, um, but also feels like we're touching on something old and and um, just trying to make something unique out of that. And and it's easier said than done. Um yeah. but 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 that's you know, that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what excites us. Yeah,
0: it always feels human. That's the thing that I, I think is most important. It always feels human and the human expression and, and the human uh, journey is complex, a lot of ups and downs. And so on that human factor, you know, we had Lindsay Ofsasic on the show, Thomas mm-hmm. Bolton from Maker's Mark, the work that's mm-hmm. happening with the Lee Initiative, the mm-hmm. pivot to mm-hmm. feeding people across the country, Softa mm-hmm. Restaurant, your Denver outpost, Jose Salazar, Ming Tsai, have both been on the show, amazing chefs. So talk about the Lee Initiative in this moment, the importance and the ability to scale and have such massive impact. Yeah, so... so-
2: um, you know, we, we when when restaurants shut down March fifteenth, we opened up a relief kitchen here in Louisville, Kentucky on March sixteenth, uh, and we fed uh, that first night. We fed about two hundred people. The second night, we fed like two hundred and fifty, and the third night, we fed like four hundred and fifty. Um, and we quickly realized like this was a this was a crisis that that there was a lot of restaurant workers that were suddenly out of work without pay without a support uh without a safety net um and that um it's a huge segment of of society that works in restaurants that relies on a restaurant paycheck um and so we just realized like this was not gonna this is not a louisville problem it's a nationwide problem and we luckily had the support of Makers makersmark, who is our partner anyway in in our nonprofit, and they quickly came on board and said, "Here's some seed money. can you expand this um, and we did, and, and Lindsay and I did not sleep for two weeks, and we went from one relief kitchen to nineteen in about two and a half weeks. Um, Have you slept so, since yeah we've we've got some sleep since <laughs> you know we've bit. got we, yeah we're we're now in phase two of the lead initiative, which is uh, our attempt to um um financially boost farms and restaurants as they try and reopen now. A lot of restaurants are trying to reopen and their cash reserves are really low. Um, and and whereas you're, you're not seeing a lot of restaurant closings right now because everyone's trying to make it, um, you're going to see a lot of casualties come the end of summer. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is create a, a, a food supply chain and a support system where uh, farms can, and can del- deliver direct um, two restaurants for free, and give them products um, so that they have some financial relief in trying to, to reopen. Um, so that's our phase two that we're doing, and and we're in, we're going to be in sixteen cities with that one. Um, so we're just you know it's just I don't know it's it's what we're doing. Um, this is so unprecedented. This is so insane. Yeah. And um, I can't, I I couldn't have survived this past three months not doing this work, um, because I just cannot sit on my hands and watch all this tragedy happen. And and this work has been so gratifying, um, and it's really kept me kept me, you know, sane uh, throughout this whole process.
0: Yeah. Real quick, I want you to touch on your perspective now, thinking about food even more differently in the fact that you're just trying to, the purest form of hospitality, just trying to feed people, to like yeah, nurture them. I mean, I'm very it, interested in
2: that. Yeah, it puts everything in perspective, right? Like we, we, we obsess over like, you know, the, 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 the flavor of a sauce and and all of a sudden this puts it in perspective and and people, you know, people are happy. Um, they're content yeah. to, to have food and, and, and it's necessary. And, and, you know, food is not just... You know, it's not just like an Instagram post, right? Like food is hope. You know, food is um, food is meaning that you care. Uh, Food gives people a sense of belonging. Um, It's huge. It's really, really massive. And so, for us, this process has made all of us. My entire staff. My entire staff has been working at the relief kitchen, and we've grown closer together. We've we've realized that our mission is bigger than just Making fancy food. Um, we just closed one of my restaurants and turned it into a permanent relief kitchen um, to help out those in, 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 in um, neighborhoods in Louisville that need it. Um, we, we, I have realized, and and many of my staff as well, that. Um, The idea of giving and charity and and the idea of sharing wealth is going to be a a lifelong mission now. It's not just something that you do during COVID. It's something that we are going to plan for, set aside a budget for, and make sure it's always uh, available so we can do that.
0: Okay, well, let's take these last 30 seconds. This is your... Uh, Oscar, James Beard award-winning uh, thank you speech where you got to rattle off all the people that have had an impact and you're going to forget somebody's name, but give us some of the humans that have been supporting this work that are behind the scenes that are actually in the trenches making it happen for you.
2: Uh, I, there's n- I, just, I do it all myself. No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it's it. All me. It's all me. Uh, no, so so my co-founder and director of the Lee Initiative is Lindsay Osasek, who is a... Uh, human tour de force, and and yes. and um, she, I could not do this without her. I mean, she's really um, behind the scenes, running the whole show, um, and and she really makes it all happen every day. Even right now, I just got off the phone with her, and she's she's you know making deliveries and and That's doing phone calls and raising money, and, and it's crazy. Um, Kevin Ashworth is my executive chef, who's been you know out of work for three months just like me and he's been behind the scenes you know running and you know getting deliveries and making stuff happen and and, and you know putting out fires and emergencies and um, those two have been so integral in what, what we've been doing um, you know other chefs James Garst who has been running the, the relief kitchen um, you know Kelsey Mira my whole staff my entire team um and then you know there's um dare to care who's been so generous with their food obviously makers mark has been such a huge huge financial support for us we could not do any of this without the support of makers mark um you know and in smaller companies like pnc bank um, um you know tabasco um, whole foods uh, there, there, there have been so many people um, that have outreached to us. And then all the chef partners. I mean, we have 19 chef partners all around the country, and every single one has gone above and beyond the call of action and, and really stepped up raised money um did incredible things and and made sure that that we're we we looked good and we were feeding as many people and more um i mean we fed almost three hundred fifty thousand people throughout this crisis and i couldn't have done that without them so shout out to all of them and as well as my family for putting up with me for the past three months and and all the craziness that i've i've had to bring home every day
0: yeah, those yeah. are the truest unsung hospitality heroes, as we call them. Yeah. You, know, you can uh, you can count on us at Best Serve Podcast. We are going to get all 19 of those chefs on the show because I think it's thank important. You. We'd thank love you. to get any of the farmers involved on the show. I think the mission is clearly not just for now. It is the bedrock of it's what's going journey. to be next in our industry. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Chef Edward Lee, thank you so much for taking some time for being on thank the show.
2: You. Thank you for having me. All
0: right. Cheers. Cheers. Let's welcome in Garrett Oliver, the legend himself, brewmaster of the Brooklyn Brewery, a craft beer icon for sure. We're going to talk a little bit about beer and food, something that has been very much at the forefront of Garrett's work for a long time. It was very formative for me in my early chef career. Garrett, thank you so much for taking some time.
3: You are very welcome. Great to be here.
0: All right, let's take people back. We like the origin stories, the backstory a little bit why and when and where did you get into this crazy thing called craft beer
3: well my origin story goes back further than most as i like to tell the kids i'm uh, i'm 400 years old and i've always <laughs> been here so um i started you know into beer you know in 1983. um i moved to london i was stage managing rock bands uh you know as a as a job which is something that i had done before when i was uh, at university um i ran a concert hall but on the side my friends were taking me to the pub and at the pub i discovered this stuff called beer now, <laughs>
0: a um, proper pint of beer huh that's I where had, it started i had
3: thought that i had been drinking beer for the past four years at college um and that i knew what beer was which was a thin yellow, fizzy liquid with hopefully almost no flavor. And then there was Guinness, which I thought of as almost a separate entity uh, uh, from beer. And, you know, we rarely saw that, you know, when I was living in Boston. And so when I got to to England and they had the cast conditioned beer, you know, on the hand pump in the pub and each one tasted different and each uh, uh, particular brewery had different qualities to it it just completely blew my mind. And I fell in love with this. And then I went traveling from there all over Europe, uh, You know, the country that was then Czechoslovakia. Uh, I went to Belgium, I went to Germany, I got an interrail pass and I spent a month on the road in Europe and went to you know all these European countries and each one's with different types of beer. Uh, and then eventually after a year or so, I moved back to the United States and I went to the bar and they said, Bud, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, Coors, Coors Light, Heineken. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided that, like, I, I couldn't take this. I couldn't live this way anymore, you know, eating and drinking garbage. Yeah. And so yeah. uh, I changed my life from a culinary point of view. And I changed my life from a drinking point of view. And, you know, the, that latter involves starting to brew at home. I was not interested at the time in actually making beer. What I was interested in was having the beer, and the only way to get the beer was to make it yourself. So it was a
0: necessity is the mother of all invention, right? You had you had a need and now a compulsion to have good beer in the mid '80s. That wasn't really existing. So then, take us. So you're homebrewing. When does it turn into a profession? What's the first foray into being a professional brewer?
3: Well, I'll shorten the, uh, 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 the story considerably, but I was helping run a, a group called the New York City Home Brewers Guild through them and ourselves. I knew the brewmaster of a place called uh, Manhattan Brewing Company, which had been started in 1984. Uh, and so uh, he had been the head brewer, the brewmaster there had been the head brewer for Sam Smiths in England. And uh, I was at the brewery and he told me that his assistant was leaving. And I practically grabbed him by the collar and said, I want that job. And so a few weeks later, uh, I started as an apprentice. Uh, That was 1989. Um, And uh, a couple of years after that, I became the head brewer there when he moved to California. And then about a year and a half later, I went to Brooklyn Brewery. So that was 94. and I've been at Brooklyn Brewery for 26 years,
0: Ah, 26 years and. Let's talk about Brooklyn Brewery just for a moment. Like it really blazed the trail in a lot of ways. For you, just beyond the beer, just creating culture within the four walls, so to speak, of Brooklyn Brewery, but at large in the craft beer community, which was not a thing. Now it's palpable everywhere you go. Here in Denver, in Brooklyn, so many other places, the craft beer community actually means something. For you at the, at the forefront of that, What does it look like and feel like to have so many humans now rallying around being part of the crappier community
3: yeah i think it's great you know it's it's gotten to the point where it's no longer our little club where you go in there and you recognize everybody um but i think in a certain way that that's uh that's great it can be overwhelming and confusing at times You know, we were we were the first brewery to do so many things. I mean, we were the first brewery in the world to do collaborations. Collaborations was invented by me and Brooklyn Brewery. Nobody else had done any before. Who was the first
0: collaboration?
3: They are now with the first one. It was with Breakspear uh, Brewery, which is now gone. They uh, they ripped the brewery down uh, to sell the land off for expensive condos, even though the brewery itself was very uh, was very profitable. Um, and so uh, we've seen things like that happen over the years. But more importantly, uh, a collaboration has become part of, you know, a worldwide craft beer culture that fortunately, you know, I still have the opportunity to play in on a regular basis. So, you know, I have collaborations going on now. I was doing collaborations in, uh, in China in October before, you know, coronavirus hit. Um, there's constantly stuff going on.
0: Collaboration in this moment of coronavirus, COVID, has been important because now we're thinking about everything very differently. We're thinking about the way that we interact with each other on such a simple, fundamental, human way. Are you thinking about beer differently? Are you tripling down potentially on collaboration because it's going to be all about like our collective Versus kind of our individual brands and our beers being what distinguishes us. Has that challenged you any notions or again, how do you maybe double down, triple down, quadruple down on collaboration being kind of the core of where you started and where you've been pushing the industry for years and years?
3: Well, I had been over the last you know a uh, couple of years anyway, there was a period when I kind of walked away from collaborations because, mm-hmm. It got to the point where everybody was doing it and it seemed performative in some way it was kind of like an instagram thing where everybody's going to brew the next hazy ipa that tastes exactly the same as the last hazy ipa and all these bros are going to stand together on the platform in the brewery and say hey man i'm here with my bros and we're yeah like, and we all have beards, and we're all this and we're all that and we're <laughs> brewing the same beer i was like this is, you know this i'm not interested in this uh so I'm continuing the way that I have. I want I want each collaboration we do to actually mean something. Um, and in our collaborations, we've invented so many things, and I want to make sure that keeps going. So uh, uh, there are all kinds of projects that have been underway, and you know as the current social turmoil has you know ratcheted up and as you know coronavirus has changed life for all of us, uh, there have been new initiatives that grow further, you know, uh, uh, out of that. So, you know, this is all, I think, for everybody uh, uh, an evolving evolving situation, but I just want to make sure that as we do all of these things, that our, you know, our core principles are still expressed through everything that we do.
0: I want to talk about the brewers table for a moment and just thinking about beer and food and not beer and food being a thing that you do at a, at a fancy high end dinner, but the the idea of connecting people through experience, not just the ones that are on the end consumer side of it, but also connecting brewers and chef. It's been very pivotal to me, very seminal in my life of, of when I read that book and understanding that food and wine absolutely has a place yet beer and, Food also has a place at the table. I'm thinking about that a lot as we talk to a lot of chefs and thinking about what's going to be on the table, thinking about the concepts of it's not what's on the plate, but who gets it to the plate. It's not what's in the glass, but who gets it to the glass. Uh, Where's your mind at right now when you're thinking about the power of sitting down and having beer and food, breaking bread, having a drink together, kind of that dynamic that you laid an amazing groundwork for so many years ago and continue to do. But talk about the power that beer and food can have together at the table?
3: Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, what I I wrote Brewmatches table as a book that I intended to be something that if you read it and you understood and paid a little bit of attention to what it said, what I was going to give you on the other side of that book was a slightly better life, period. You know, and, you know, I kind of feel like that's something whether it's like you teach somebody about, you know, fermented sauces, like you never had fish sauce before, and now fish sauce is in your kitchen, your life gets slightly better. Uh, Somebody teaches you about jazz, hey, listen to this Coltrane record, and you had never really heard jazz before, and then you have that for the rest of your life, and you have a better life. That's the way I think about craft beer. It's not a thing that, like, you have to study or whatever else, but if you know a little bit and you think about it a little bit, your life just gets a little bit better every day, every day. And that, that really is the idea behind, you know, behind Brewmaster's Table and whether it is doing something with, you know, a Thomas Keller uh, uh, or it's something do, that we're doing at a neighborhood restaurant, it's all really part of the same thing. And it's a thing that I want to bring, uh, not only to the communities that have already discovered it, but to a lot of communities that have yet to discover it. Um, Because anything that can give you a better day every day for the rest of your life for like really almost no money is uh, a thing that I think that we all want to know about. And I love wine. Like I have like 70, 80 bottles of wine in the house right now. I know a lot about wine. I have conducted wine tastings. I can sit here and talk to you about Riesling varietal character for an hour. But, uh, you know, if you're talking about day-to-day enjoyment with food, et cetera, et cetera, wine is a pretty limited drink. Uh, and I kind of find that, uh, uh, that beer is a much less limited drink. It's much more culinary. And I don't think it's like an argument, it is simply factual because beer has a, a a recipe and i can spice it i can i've done so many wine versus beer with cheese and wine versus beer yep. with food against sommeliers in front of an audience and there's two kinds of sommeliers the kinds that know they're going to lose and the kinds that don't know they're going to lose <laughs> but they're all but they all lose and the thing is it's a trick question they can't win <laughs> you know like, yes. it's really like not possible like you have you know you have one gun and i have all of these weapons uh-huh. you know? and like there's no way you're never gonna make it through so f- on a day-to-day basis for the consumer this is just a thing you want to know period it's a thing you want to know
0: uh, i think it's great all right these last maybe 30 seconds i just we'd love to hear some of the uh, humans at Brooklyn Brewery that you're just so lucky to work with, to be surrounded by. Who are some of the people that, when you show up to work, you really hope that they're there those days? We'd love to be introduced to some of the people that are out there, I'm sure, hustling, struggling, making things happen in this moment. Uh, who are some of those people for you?
3: Well, at the brewery today, you know, Al Duval, who's been on the scene uh, uh, about as long as I have, which is a long, long time. <laughs> you know, uh, we're preparing, you know, tomorrow we're going to can a beer, which is a uh, collaboration between us and the Weldworks brewery, uh, out in, uh, oh, yeah,
0: Neil and those guys.
3: Yep. So they, you know, they, they came out and we're uh, brewing a beer called Uh, we're canning a beer called boundary spell, uh, tomorrow, which is going to uh, benefit, uh, the service workers coalition, which is a mutual aid society, uh, between various people, uh, who worked as service workers and behind the scenes, uh, back of the house in the restaurant trade. Um, uh, we got Steve Bartel over there today, our man Ayad uh, Asha uh, in the house, you know, making stuff happening. You know, we have, we have a great a great team. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the best days of Brooklyn Brewery uh, are, are definitely yet to come. We've done our most interesting stuff ever in the past five years. I mean, we've made much better, more interesting beers than we ever did. Uh, and I think that uh, you know we're we're slowly becoming the kind of brewery that we've wanted to be. I, I heard somebody say once that the true meaning of success is becoming the person that you always claim to be in public. <laughs> and, and perfect. Think, uh, you know, and I think that uh, you know, we're, you uh, know, we can, we can barely see that person from where we are, but at least we're getting closer, you know, and that's, uh, and that's what life's about.
0: What a great way to end this segment. Amazing. Garrett, I'm grateful for the relationship that we have, the things that we've done in the past, the brewmaster's table. I think I misspoke said brewer's table. The brewmaster's table really changed a lot for me. And to your point, the best is yet to come. Garrett Oliver, thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Hey,
0: thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Be Cheers. Well. And on we go in the 100th episode of Best Serve Live. Our next guest is Silvia Hernandez with Kamal Heritage Food Incubator, as well as La Katrina Grill, all in Denver, Colorado. Sylvia, thank you so much for being on.
4: No, thank you for inviting me and to come here and support the small business.
0: Yes, we are all about supporting small business, At all times, especially in this time, and it was very important for me to have your voice on our 100th episode, because we all have very different experiences. We all come from very different backgrounds, yet we're all so passionate about the purest form of hospitality, which is feeding other human beings. And I think that that is something that you embody so well. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Take us back. When, where? did you start to get yourself into the kitchen? How did that come about? Give us a little bit of that backstory.
4: Okay, that was long time ago, yes. When I was 18, I'm 49. So when I was 18, I was studying a career in Mexico City. I am originally from Mexico City. Okay. So I was studying the high school can be here at technical college. I studied a technical career on gastronomy in Mexico City long time ago, when I was 18. (laughs) Just uh, believe it or not, uh, I was going more like for administration area, not like a practice cooking, I don't know why. But uh, when I get into Denver is when I start really getting that thing coming back. I have it my whole life, you know. With my mom, my mom also was a a chef in Mexico. She was working on restaurants, so so the cuisine has been on on my whole life, you know, like every day.
5: That's great.
4: So um... I think that's why I get it, and. Till I get here is when I decide, okay, I studied this, I know about this, I have my heritage cuisine, um, and people really at the beginning was pushing me a little bit about why you don't do this, why you don't open a business, <laughs> why your food tastes different, why, why? I said, eh, because mine, maybe because my uh, recipes are different, like from my family, mm-hmm. so it's not, you cannot find those recipes in the books. Uh, And I said, sometimes we don't have a recipe writing. We just cook. So I cook whatever I saw and whatever I have here. And really, whatever I have here.
0: Yes, yes. Let's let's talk about that right now because I think it's so important. It's exactly that. There's a couple things that I think are interesting in what you're saying. One is that you have this background in it. Your mother as well was a chef. I I really want to know, when you're cooking to feed somebody, it's emotional for you. Talk about the importance of that. What story are you trying to tell? Are you trying to connect people to your mother, to your abuelita, to Mexico City, to your heritage? Is that what you're trying to express through, through a simple dish like a taco? Is that what you're trying to communicate?
4: Yes, yes. I really try to communicate first my love, my feelings, my culture. Um, when I am cooking even just a simple steak taco, in my head, in my heart, in my eyes, I have like, okay, how, how I will eat this taco in Mexico City. So, you know, that, that's the way I really cook uh, even every day. Or when I am trying to make a new dish uh, to sell on my car- catering business, I always think about that. My family. So I think customers are like my family, part of my family.
0: Yes. Was it a challenge at first? Because when you came here, look, let's just call it like it is Mexican food for a lot of time in this country was turned into American food with Mexicans in the kitchen and some Mexicans names kind of on the menu. But it wasn't truly authentic. When people say Mexican food, they think of one thing. Mexico is as diverse as, you know, the food culture is like China. And I think of like, In Indonesia, like these countries, these cultures that are so massive and the food of like Yucatan or Jalisco or Oaxaca are as different as French, Italian and German food. Like they can be that different. So talk about that a little bit. Was it a challenge? Did you take the challenge as an opportunity for you to to push through and showcase your culture? Just give us a little bit of that, of your understanding of Mexican cuisine in America.
4: I decide to stand up for my culture, uh, my cultural cuisine, because I was dealing when I got here, the same as you says, um I hear enchiladas. My mom also is from Oaxaca, uh, kind of the most traditional towns. So for me, the enchiladas are with mole. And in Mexico City, we eat enchiladas with red chili, that is okay, I've been eating both, Two enchiladas yep. but then i get here and i find some kind of a strange chile and they said this is one tomatillo enchiladas and i was like oh we call it tomatadas, no enchiladas and in this journey i am trying uh kind of teaching my customers my dishes how we how i call it how i made them why i call it that way or what that means to me to do it that way so yes, for me, it's a challenge to for people to recognize some of my dishes. Uh, one other example can be the gorditas. In Mexico City, we eat the gorditas handmade, and we it's already stuffed inside with whatever we want to put it. And sometimes we fry them, and the other time, we do it just in the flat top. Uh, when I do it, um, it's in a public vending uh, people told me, "Oh, you're making pupusas," and I says, "No, I'm making gorditas."
0: Different country.
4: <laughs> yes, I said, but looks the same. I said, "No, it's not the same because also the dishes inside the pupusas is completely different as the as the stuffing, and I put it in my gorditas." So
0: one of my grandmothers is also from Mexico City, and so uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas time, we would always have some American meal stuff, and then we would always have. Uh, tamales that she would make and for breakfast she would make uh chalupas for breakfast and sometimes she made gorditas as well and i remember at the time the the taco bell chihuahua commercials were really famous and i was like oh we're making these these taco bell dishes and then she made them i was like this is the most amazing thing that i could ever imagine yet the name chalupa the name gorditos gorditas had been taken by taco bell and turned into this thing that had nothing to do with mexican culture at all and then mocked them by having this cute adorable and hilarious chihuahua don't get me wrong but this chihuahua now represented the mexican people it was totally crazy to me and so i'm glad that you got to mention gorditas i'm glad that that came about because that is truly a part of your culture yeah you're trying to stand up for it, which i think is very important let's talk about kamal Kamal yeah. very much is standing up for culture. It's also yes. standing up for women. So give yes. people really quick who don't know exactly what the Kamal Heritage Food incubator actually is and and what's their mission.
4: Kamal that you mentioned is a heritage food incubator, but most of that, I would say Kamal comes and opens to make people uh, feel like they are they can make their dream come true. That's a very, really, really important uh, because, uh, was a group of ladies that we was working before comals opened, trying to see how we can make it a work to open our own business. But we find out about many, many things that we couldn't open the business. And in that time is when comals, you know, all these comals start coming, they contact us and we have a meeting and like I would say like in Four months they says are you ready to open command and i was like what what when like you know but really comes uh, and like to people to tell them that everything comes comes when needed because Kamal really opens in the right time three years so, ago
0: so i think three years ago that kamal opened in the taxi uh, district of denver and so kamal takes takes women, immigrants from different countries, uh, sig- heavily focused on, on South America, Central America, and very much in Mexico. Also, I've met women from the Middle East as well that are cooking their dishes and bringing their culture to bear. And then also teaching them not only just how to cook the food and present the food in a way kind of through the, the model of people being able to order the food and eat at Kamal. However, the back end of teaching them about the business, I think it's so important. And so Kamal has amazing food. I can literally see the taxi building from right here. Amazing food, and if you're ever in Denver, go check it out, absolutely. However, the food is less important to me, less impactful, less powerful than the women. And seeing the women there being empowered to create, to share their culture and their cuisine, their skill and their talent, and then be able to go and do their own business, I think is absolutely one of the most important missions that we can have. And you are a product of that work because you now have La Catrina Grill, you yeah. started your own business, the, the American dream, the 18 year old girl at culinary school in Mexico City now has their own business in Denver, Colorado, and you're feeding our community by teaching us your community, your culture. Okay. It's, yeah. it's the most amazing story I could ever imagine. Talk about you now being a business owner, the joy of it, how crazy and challenging it is, I'm sure. Like, give us a little bit of you now having like Catrina yeah. um,
4: I opened La Catrina Grita exactly kind of same time that Comal's opened because of that reason. I really want to have a starting together, like learn with them and open my business at the same time. And I was really very supportive for Comal and uh, letting me do that. And um, I was very excited about going there and, and see other ladies there that works there. Uh, we really start uh, with Raimunda, Dolores, Paola. We was a, lo- a lot of girls there very excited to show our culture. That was the part that was making me more happier. Like, uh, you know, it's not it's not just about cooking at home, is showing other persons while we cook at home and why we cook at home that dish or what that dish means to me. So, um, and to them also, and at the beginning, yes, we start with some Latino American ladies, most of them from uh, El Salvador yes. um, from Mexico. And little later, after Comas opens, other persons comes from Middle Easter that I love them food, too, It's really is really amazing uh, how we can connect each other. At the beginning, the language is a barrier, but I think the food connects us. We don't need a language when we are cooking. Um, what and- you just
0: said is one of the most important things in this time of turmoil. And there's a lot happening with social justice and racial inequality. And we know what's happening in the streets of a lot of cities. It is devastating, yet what you just said is the most important thing that I can imagine. I think that if you sit down at a table and have a meal with somebody, have food and drink that represents them as a community, as a people, as an individual, as a country, as a heritage, you may not always agree on things. You may you may like this more than that. You may not always be coming from the exact same place, yet there's no way that you could ever hate somebody who has cooked a dish that they learned to to cook from their grandmother. There's just no way. You always will find a moment of love for that person because you've sat at the table and you've had that experience. So I think it's so, so important, the work that you're talking about. And so uh, just maybe a couple more seconds. Anybody at La Catrina Grill that you wanna highlight and, and share, we always love so La really, like
4: Katrina Green really is really a, a family business, I would say, because my daughter, when I have a catering, my daughter works for me as a staff buffet. my son works for me as a prepping, like, for example, in this journey, like uh, uh, with the COVID, I have to deliver some box lunches already pre-packed, and, you know, it's hard to hire people to to do it, so it's really my business, La like Katrina is a family business. So we worked together, <laughs> the three of us. Also, my I, I am a grandmother. My grandson is just four months. So he was even watching me <laughs> doing some paperwork. And,
0: and you're not only creating a business, you're creating a legacy now that at some point your grandchildren have an opportunity that... you've know you helped create, that Kamal helped, that La Catrina helped. I I think that this industry has helped to flourish. So I really appreciate sharing the story. It's one of the most important stories and it's the story. It's so personal to you. It's also a story that many others have. And the more that we hear those stories, the more that we have food from people who have these stories, the better off our industry can be because we can all kind of flourish together. So thank you so much for taking some time. Thank you for being on the show, Sylvia.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would like to mention also about the, the command mission is always to support the ladies. So I forget to mention something very important about that. I think I couldn't make it if comal wasn't supporting me economically, too, because the other part of Komal is when you work there, you get paid for going there and learn and show your culture. That is amazing. I I always see programs that you pay something to learn. And here they pay you to go and learn. And I don't see, I couldn't uh, support my family without that help.
0: It's such important work. Thank you for highlighting that, Sylvia. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us.
4: Yeah, thank you. And don't forget to stop by this coming Tuesday. We have the reopening of Komal. So yes. check out the Facebook page, Instagram, and all of those social medias.
0: I like it. You are a savvy operator now. Make sure you get the plug-in. Get people over to Taxi. You, you've got all of the tools. Uh, I'm really grateful to have had you on the show. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And last but not least, our headliner, the one and only Debbie Gold, a mentor of mine early on when I was a punk 23-year-old line cook, took me under her wing and learned so much, and the relationship has continued, and I'm so grateful to have you on the show, Debbie.
5: Oh, well, thank you for having me, and congratulations to you. And I have to say, it's been great to reconnect with you and see what you've been up to.
0: Yes, and you... Have done an amazing job of what is so important to us—acknowledgement, acknowledging our unsung hospitality heroes, just acknowledging each other across the industry. Because it's so easy to get caught up in your, your the minutia, the day-to-day grind. But thinking about the the who, the people that impact us, is so important. And and you, I'm so thankful that you've done a lot of that. Multiple people have been on our show and continue to be guests into the future because you said, you know what, you should talk to this person. They're great, and that's all I need. You are absolutely yeah. right. They're great. So we're gonna talk a little bit about Chicago, your home city, then we, we met in Kansas City where you really put yourself on the map. And then now back in Chicago, you and Amy Morton doing amazing work with Found Kitchen and Stolp Island and The Barn. But I wanna go all the way back to Chicago and Debbie growing up, talk about the hospitality bug. When did it catch you? Where were you? Give us a little bit of that background.
5: Uh, You know, I always like to cook. Um, You know, my mom uh, cooked for the family, so it wasn't a passion of hers. Same for my dad. It it was nobody's passion. But for me, you know, when I started out, there was no Internet, and I'd get Bon Appetit and food and wine, and I'd sit there, and I'd look at all the recipes, and I'd go, Mom, I want to make this. And never liked to make, you know, cookies or cakes out of a box. (laughs) So it was just really – I. Growing up, I I guess you know it's funny. Not too long ago, my my family was together, and my mom was like, "You always knew what you wanted to do," and I guess I never really thought about that. I just always loved cooking, so I tried to figure out how to be uh, noticed because when I was looking in the 80s, there were very few women in the industry, and you have to make your so stand out and so that's what I I had to do I tell the story of one of the first jobs that I applied for the chef looked at me I was in college I was looking for a summer line cook job and the the chef looked at me and you know you go for an interview you look nice did my makeup you know I'm a little person uh and he he was like you know you'll break a nail if you go back there and I was Ooh. yeah
0: oh and for yeah. those who don't know, Debbie, that is not the right way to approach <laughs> Debbie Gold. You you may be smaller in stature, but you are big in power and personality. Don't get it don't get it twisted, anybody. So so you were very much had to break into the boys' club, and you were determined. And there's so many stories uh, that you have about just the different ways that exactly that. The break a nail story, the this and that, but it was clear that you just were not going to let anybody or anything stop you from that goal. Give us a moment, maybe fast forward a little bit when it was like, oh, now I'm a chef. Like it really clicked for you. You had the opportunity. You put something on a menu, anything like that. What is that that moment for you that you think back on?
5: Yeah, that's kind of crazy. And and you mentioned me uh, working with Amy Morton right now. She actually was the first one to give me a chef position. She had a restaurant called Mirador in uh, downtown. And that was the first time that I got to create what I wanted to create and put it on a plate. And, you know, that one feeling, you know, it's an art. And what's different than an uh, artist who paints or sculpts or draws is our uh the reaction to what we do is immediate you put it down and immediately people see it and then when they taste it it's either they liked it or they don't like it and
1: right uh, it doesn't grow no you
5: yeah you don't have time and the feedback doesn't come a couple months later it's immediate and if they don't like it you're definitely going to hear it (laughs) (laughs) yes so you know that that was and the good feeling comes when people like what you're doing and, and they want more. And, you know, when you start building your reputation, the hard part is, you know, when somebody goes, well, wow, this just tasted like dog food and you're <laughs> oh, like, brutal. When's the last time you ate dog food?
0: Yep. That's right. <laughs> so I want to, uh, I want to talk about your team right now with the, the group of restaurants that, that you have in Chicago, in Evanston specifically, And I want to set the table for people. When I was 23, I came to work at 40 Sardines in Overland Park, Kansas, Kansas City for you. You know, you were off James Beard Award, up for, you know, multiple other awards. And I was like, I'm getting into, I'm, I'm leveling up. It was very clear to me I was leveling up. And that opportunity came about from Tim Doolittle, big shout out, a friend of both of ours, really talented chef, and Family Meal. This was something that uh, has stuck with me and we talked about it on your full episode of the podcast and I'll talk about it again and again and again. Family meal was something so important to you that if somebody just called it in and put up a crap dish for family meal, you let them have it more than if they if they overcooked a fish on the fish station during service. It was almost more important to you that we take care of each other in that moment. You also force us out of the kitchen, go sit down or even stand up, but you are going to break bread with your team tonight and those moments like real it was important to me and it meant a lot and I think it had a huge impact on the success of that business so take me to now and talk about the importance of kind of that dynamic for you family meal or just the culture you're trying to create and kind of how that's playing out in your restaurant group today
5: um you know I like we're a team um and and if you don't feel that you're a team then you know, I, I think you know the culture wouldn't be right in your kitchen because everybody, um, no matter what their position, has the same job description in my book. Everybody's job is to please the guest. Period. And if you're not happy in your job and you're not respected in your job, you're not going to do a good job, which is going to reflect on. And you know, it's the same. The dishwashers, the busboy, the host. You know, everybody's got the same job description. And I never, I'm not motivated uh, to do my best when you're yelled and screamed at, at or you're belittled. That doesn't do anybody any good. And if you don't have enough respect for the team around you to make employee meal, that's edible and that's good. that you know what I mean? It's like, what are you doing there? And It's just, you know, if you're feeding the servers and you get a crappy meal, in a sense, it's like, how are they going to feel when they have to go talk to the guests about the food you're serving? Whether they ordered it off the menu or it was what you ate for employee meal, it's got to be good, you know, and if you don't respect the people that you work with, the major problem right there in my Uh, book.
0: I could not agree. The opportunity for success downstream from that interaction is diminished. It absolutely is. And I think that's important. You know, some restaurants are open straight through the day and can't necessarily like shut down between lunch and dinner or aren't the kind of place that's only open for dinner. So like everybody sitting down together may not be feasible for everyone. However, the care and attention to your team is going to empower them to be the utmost hospitalitarians when it comes to the guests. So I think that's super important. And between you buying into that on the kitchen side and Amy absolutely building a career just like you have on truly, truly being high touch hospitality, I think is important. So let's talk about the team. And you know me, like name drop as many humans as possible. Who are some of the people now? Because this is a challenging time. And I think we need to triple down on what you're talking about. We need to invest in our people emotionally, financially more than ever. How do you see that playing out now? And who are some of the people that are just so damn inspiring in this moment through all this all this turmoil?
5: Um, you know, I, I have a little crew right now because we're not open 100%. And I've got three people, Levante, Yoko, and Jose, who are with me. Um, and... Uh, I tried to bring them back as soon as possible. Give them a few hours if I couldn't you know spread it around. And I have to say they've come in. They've worked really hard, and it's changing times. And I've been changing my menu every week. And you know it's like, what can I do? How can I do this? And uh, either once or twice a week, we're doing um, two hundred dinners for a local shelter here in Evanston. Um, and everybody pitches in from the front of the house, I've got Kathleen and Tara and Fred just to, to make it happen. And one of my things is, you know, with the cooks, I'm like, Hey guys, you know, did you put salt and pepper on that? Did you do this? I want the food to be good for those 200 dinners, just as I want it to be good for anybody else that might get food out of our kitchen. Um, you know, it. it you know, it's just everybody's kind of a blank sheet to me i don't care your background your color your anything it really doesn't matter you're a person we all like to eat good food you know one of the things i always say to cooks you know how to try to push them to be the best is you know if you take a salad and even if it's like five six dollar salad really simple and nothing spectacular, you know, it could be just iceberg, tomato, and shredded carrots. If you get like soggy lettuce or mushy carrots, $5 is too expensive for that. And one, I wouldn't eat it. If I wouldn't, you know, if I'm making a plate of food and I wouldn't eat it, I shouldn't be putting it out. And neither no, should anybody else. So um, I want everybody to get good food, no matter the reason they're eating it from my kitchen, it better be good.
0: It doesn't matter if it's foie gras or an iceberg salad, it's still food that's meant to touch people emotionally and then also to nurture them. And in this time, this comfort food has been a fascinating concept because there is there, there is there's no foie gras on caviar right now. There's just how do we truly take care of each other and feed each other, which I think is so important. Uh, any any last thoughts uh, as we kind of wrap this up? And uh, and thank you to you and to everybody. I mean, uh, uh, our full line of guests for 100 episodes of Best Serve Live. Uh, any parting thoughts to kind of take us out, make the world a better place, Debbie?
5: I just think people need to care about each other and think about the other person. It's just that simple. Um, And my motto, I've always treated people the way I wanted to be treated. So if you don't respect people, then, you know, there's too much going on. And the negative energy just doesn't help anybody. So I just try to get along with people.
0: I could not (laughs) agree more really really appreciate you kind of lending your voice the support that you showed me personally the support that you show best of podcast so many guests have already been on again that you know you've connected with us and i think it's important the acknowledgement is strong in you i think you're always looking to bring more people into the fold and we need more leadership like that so debbie gold thank you so much for being on the show
5: well thank you for all the kind words and congratulations again and stay safe and keep going keep
0: pushing will do cheers cheers everybody that is a wrap on the 100th episode of best serve live i could not be more excited for all of you to become a part of this community for all the guests that were a part of this it really really matters the amount of new humans in hospitality that we got introduced to it matters acknowledgement matters and so take an opportunity after watching this create a post, use the hashtag unsung hospitality heroes, tell a story, show us a picture, a video of somebody that when you show showed up to work or show up to work today, you're just so excited because that person is also working. There are so many people whose stories matter yet they go unheard. And I think it makes a big, big difference. So let's do more of that. Rock Corey behind the scenes. Come in here. There we, there we go. go. And speaking of acknowledgement, Rock Corey, a.k.a. Corey Nelson, Betsy Cummings, a.k.a. the Hardy Mama are in the house here at Softa Restaurant. Very grateful for their work. All right, you guys are done. Uh, so important to, to have this team for us to be able to come out here, support the hospitality industry, the community in Denver specifically, to be here at Softa Restaurant. And for Liliana Myers here, Alon Shia, you you saw him. That's Alon Shaya, you know, the one and only, running back and forth with to-go bags, like trying to feed the community. I think it really matters. So I want everybody to take this moment to acknowledge each other. It really does matter. Thank you so much for me. 100 episodes of Best Served Live, unbelievable. We have not skipped the day since March 18th, and I'm truly grateful for the opportunity to share more stories with you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at best served podcast tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes